Hi! Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 30 of our long journey through La Morte d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Maori. Tonight, we have a bonus class this evening, uh, as I had been trying to get through the whole the rest of the Holy Grail in only two episodes, but uh, two sessions, but it's taken us three. So, here we go. Uh, so, so tonight, we're going to we're going to achieve the grail tonight. That's what's going to happen here this evening. Pretty exciting. And then uh, starting next week, we'll be back and we'll be uh, going through the really exciting home stretch of Le Morte d'Arthur. Uh, the next two sections, the Book of Lancelot and Guinevere, and then the most piteous death uh, of Arthur. Oops, spoilers. Um, is um, uh, going to be... And that's really... Mallory at his best. It's it's uh, uh, the 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 ending of the of the story is uh, by far the best written part of the whole thing. Really good stuff. Um, that we will begin next week. For this week, we have the Grail still before us here. Um, we got through lots of tests and trials, and we're looking at how things work tonight. We're going to look at the final phases. Which are tolerably confusing, right? And I can't pretend that I'm going to be able to explain everything that goes on there. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll we'll do what we can. We'll do what we can to try to sort this out. So, um, <laughs> yeah, Tarlonio, Tarlonio, if your reaction is, oh, no, not more symbolism, then, boy, uh, yeah, you're in for it here. Because, uh, yeah. Anyway... But quickly before we begin, a few announcements. Last week I had a like a bucket load of announcements. Tonight just a, a, a sort of a small pail of announcements. Um, uh, so uh, beginning, just a, a reminder: um, our special on the science fiction part one, anytime audit tuition is ending at the end of this week. So through this Friday, you can get our anytime audit uh, version of our science fiction part one class for reduced tuition rate. So just wanted to make sure to bring that your, to your attention events. Several things coming up soon, of course, a few of which I've uh, talked about many times, one of which is very soon indeed. That is Sunshine Moot this very weekend as is. So on Saturday, uh, on Saturday this week, in just a few days, um, uh, tomorrow, indeed, I'm going to be flying down to Florida, uh, which is going to be super fun. So uh, still, we had a a few registrations come in today, which is great. There's still some room. So, um, you know, if, uh, if you think you can make it to the Orlando area uh, this weekend, then I certainly encourage you uh, to do that and come down and join us. Or, uh, next month, of course, we're going to be in the Netherlands for Nadermoot uh, in Leiden in the Netherlands on April 13th. And then, of course, Mythmoot uh, is the, the, the big event of the year from June 27th through June 30th down in Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, and I encourage you to uh, look into that and join us for that as well. The other thing that I wanted to, um, um, the other thing that I wanted to draw your attention to, because um, I haven't announced this before. Well, okay, I did last night, but other than that, I haven't announced this before. Uh, on Monday, this coming Monday, the twenty fifth, I'm going to be doing uh, an online State of the University address. I have not done one of those since the fall campaign, so I wanted to give a big update to everybody on what's been going on. There's been a busy and exciting time here at Signum University, which we're still in the middle of. So I'll talk talk to you about. 
what has happened and what's been going on. I'll talk to you about uh, what we're in the middle of and what comes next, and I'll even talk a little bit about some of our bigger plans uh, down the road. So some really cool, fun, exciting things to update you guys about. That's going to be on March 25th at 9.30 p.m. So if you go uh, to our Signum homepage here and you scroll down and you click on uh, this, you can get to the registration page, uh, the registration link, or you can just show up at twitch.tv slash SignumU. So um, that, is, uh, that is the plan. Yes, there it is. Join this event. There's the link right there. Um, okay, so... Those are things that are going on. Oh, oh, sorry. One other thing that I wanted to mention. Um, Our summer semester is coming up uh, soon. So summer registration is open at Signum University. Um, So once my browser goes back, which it is taking its very sweet time in doing. There we go. Uh, Down here at the bottom, we have links to our... um, uh, our our courses. So the Inklings and King Arthur. This is our our new course that's coming up in the summertime, uh, which a, a lot of a lot of people have been interested in, uh, and uh, we, that's available for auditing uh, for live auditing, of course, for premiere auditing, um, and uh, uh, several of our other courses happening as well this coming summer. So I encourage you to look in our catalog here, see what's happening, and. Um, uh, and you can uh, there's the the registration link to go ahead and register for courses this summer as well. So that is what is happening this week at Signum University. Now back to the Grail. So uh, we just finished with the temptations of Sir Bors at the end of class last time. Bors, who gets really the most complicated set of temptations, right, as he's the only one who, uh, uh, on whom they try to pull the fake priest trick, right? Uh, the faux interpretation trick, um, where he's given a deliberate misinterpretation uh, of the visions and experiences that he's had, um, and then ends up having to fight his own brother to the death, but doesn't kill him, uh, thus emerging from that in a slightly better state than Balin and Balin ended up doing. Um, okay, so you may remember I got to this. Oops, I got to this slide last time and just like gave up <laughs> because uh, I didn't want to go here. Let me s- say from the beginning. I'm not sure. I can't explain everything that's going on at the end of the Grail Quest, possibly because my own personal purity is insufficient. I don't know. But um, there's a lot going on at the end of this, and the way in which we get, like, symbol piled upon symbol and one thing after another gets a little bit bewildering. The three spindles... um, are really kind of um, kind of an excellent example of that, actually, uh, because well, one of the things that gets really puzzling is that um, sometimes it's not really clear what the point of all of these symbols are. You know, so for instance, like how many swords? does Galahad have at the end of the day, right? How many weapons have we seen, which, like, only Galahad is supposed to get? Um, He's got at least two, maybe three, right, at this point. Um, He keeps pulling swords out of things. Um, And, like, I get it, you know, that he is... uh, 
that he is the greatest knight. Maybe these, yeah, uh, which of course is what all of those drawings out are attached to, right? Only he who is, you know, the greatest knight ever is going to be able to do this. And of course it's Galahad. Um, but anyway, so, okay. Uh, here's my, let me just be upfront with my uncertainty at the beginning of this. I have two theories about this latter section of the Grail discussion. It seems to me comparatively straightforward through this point. That is, as we're doing the different temptations and stuff, um, the patterns seem to me relatively clear as we've been discussing. We're sort of establishing these new rules, right? This new system by which things are going. Um, you know, the Grail test, uh, the Grail quest, rather, is testing for certain things, right? Um, the purity of heart, like we see in Percival, like he can, his head can be in the wrong place and he can screw everything up and yet he passes, right? Because his heart is in the right place, as evidenced by his spontaneous crossing of himself, which always saves his bacon at the last second. So, um, again, like that kind of thing, I think I th- I think I can see. I think I can see what's going on. I can see what's going on with boars. We get the points of contrast, right, between, um, you know, the three Grail Knights, Percival, Bors, and Galahad, and then uh, uh, Gawain, right, as the point of clearest contrast, the knight whose heart is most obviously not in the right place, and whose adventures and his performance in those adventures show that most clearly. And then, of course, we have Lancelot as the middle case, right? Um, The one who, unlike uh, Gawain, has genuinely repented and turned away from his... um, from his sins, right? Um, has, unlike Gawain, shriven himself and, uh, and dedicated himself to holy things and to penance, who is still, when last we saw him, wearing a hair shirt at all times underneath his armor, which has to be really uncomfortable. So, um, anyway, um, he... But Lancelot, at the same time, is not does not have the purity of intention, remember, uh, of the Grail Knights, right? And in particular, you will notice that uh, we saw how he was failing some of these tests, how he was still working like with the tournament, right, with the White Knights and the Black Knights, how he messed that up. Um, he's still thinking by the old rules. His, his, um, his heart is not pure, like Percival's. Um, he is still oriented towards those earthly things, those worldly things, which ultimately have um, placed these limits on him, right? His focus on his own pride and worship, um, his, uh, you know, his reputation, um, his desire for Guinevere and Guinevere's approval before all other things, right? Um, those are the things which have been holding him back and are still holding him back. He says he's turning away from all of that. And you'll remember that what the trustworthy recluses have been saying about that uh, is not that he's insincere about it, right? He's not being a hypocrite in his repentance. He means it, and he has genuinely repented, and he has pledged he's not going to go back to Guinevere again. However, it has also been foreboded that his heart is not stable, 
right? Again, it's not that he's insincere in his repentance. It's just suspected uh, and foreseen that he will not be able to keep the vows that he's quite earnestly making right now. Uh, So anyway, all this stuff, as I say, seems to be, if not simple, at least to be trending in a direction which is uh, uh, which fits into a into a f- fairly clear pattern. After those temptations are over and the three Grail Knights get together and start and everybody starts shail- sailing around on random ships going random places, a large number of ships going random places uh, with different combinations of people at different points and for. Uh, hard-to-discern reasons to difficult-to-locate destinations at various points. Once things get into this stage of the Grail quest, I start losing the thread. And I'm not quite sure what the thread is in some ways. Um, As I suggested, I have two theories uh, about the end of the Grail quest here, especially as Mallory represents it. Um, which is quite close to the French source, um, to the French Vulgate version of the Quest for the Holy Grail. He's uh, um, being quite faithful in his translation here, in, in, generally, um, of the of the Quest for the Holy Grail. Um, which is to again, which is to suggest, unlike so many of the other places, he doesn't have a whole lot of changes that he's making. He doesn't. He Mallory does not seem to be pushing this story. Uh, in a different direction than his sources were. He's more directly transmitting his sources here. But anyway, as I say, I've got two theories. Theory number one uh, is that things are just kind of falling apart. (laughs) That is, um, uh, to put it simply, the problem is not not me. The problem is Maori, right? Um, That things are kind of the difference, like all of the boats and all of the magic swords and all of the symbol and symbol and symbol and, uh, and like the spindles and everything else. We'll, we'll talk about those in a second. That all of this is kind of, uh, we're, we're just getting this sort of overload and he's not really sure where this is going himself. He does not really have a very clear plan. Um, and it doesn't add up to a very unified whole, right? That's one theory. The other theory is that the problem isn't Maori, it's me, <laughs> right? Um, I can imagine a situation in which, or rather, you know, sort of a reading of this section, uh, in which these things are, like, th- that there is a unity, that there is a pattern here that I just really haven't perceived. Um, it is possible that my own mind is sort of shying back from this because it's really complicated. But I will say... Medieval folks liked really complicated, right? They liked really complicated symbolism um, and sort of sitting down with these boats and these symbols and these swords and everything and trying to sort of put all of this together uh, and uh, sort it out uh, into, you know, a clear pattern, like that there is some, that there is a sort of unity behind all of these things, but the unity is not superficial. That is, they, they're, they're moving from one symbol to the other. Those symbols all come together to form a higher unity. They're pointing to not the letter, but the spirit, right? And I'm missing the boat. Um, and, you know, there I am watching Galahad and Lancelot sail away on their boats and, and um, 
you know, and I'm left on the land because I am not one of the Grail Knights and am not getting it. And so I'm sort of left bungling around with few adventures like Sir Gawain, longing for the old days. That's very possible. I do not rule that out at all. Um, uh, and I've never really had the chance to uh, uh, really sit down and kind of work through this. I've, I've re- I very clearly remember my first reaction to this section, the first time I ever read this. And my impulse back then, uh, when I was uh, uh, younger and more energetic than I am now, uh, was like that I couldn't wait to sit down and really like work all of this out and, and uh, you know, sort of devise a reading that brought all this stuff together to sort of see what all of these symbols were tending towards and what the... Uh, the overall point was. I never really got a chance to write that paper. You know, I never really got a chance to do that. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and I still haven't. So, I don't know. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Karina, yeah, Karina says, I gotta say, I don't get it at all, but I'm like, I'm happy while not getting it. I kind of feel the same way, too. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Brian uh, points out that Mallory hasn't shown a strong inclination towards symbolism or allegory in the rest of the tale, uh, so maybe he just isn't as interested in all of that and is just including it because it's in his sources. That, yeah, now, I mean, again, I don't feel like I'm trying to resist crit fic, like I'm trying to resist trying to give an explanation for why Mallory ended up with this this way, um, because, you know, that's exactly what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he was discussing the thing to which I have given the name crit fic. Um, so I don't know, like, what is in Mallory's head uh, when he's doing this. Brian, what I can say is he does seem to be just kind of transmitting the symbolism stuff, right? Um, uh, he's definitely getting it from his sources here. Uh, this stuff is all there. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's not interested in it, especially since, I mean, again, the thing that I will say one of the arguments I would give in support of reading B, that is, that there is a sort of more unified and kind of luminous reading that is possible of the end of this than I currently have myself access to, um, is that it, it, it seems to fit the general shape, right? Um, that is, we've been looking at the way in which the quest for the Holy Grail is sort of the culmination of the Arthurian court of the Arthurian world. And in that moment, you know, in the, um, in the, in that culmination, it's also, as we see a repentance, right? A correction. Um, we've seen all along, even through the heyday of the Arthurian court here over the last 300, 400 pages, right? Of the book, um, that there have been serious problems, right? Whether it's King Mark running around doing all kinds of things, um, you know, whether it's, uh, um, uh, you know, just like King Arthur's apparent inactivity and, and uh, uh, you know, the potential difficulties with uh, the those of his knights whose primary loyalty is due to Lancelot instead of him, right? We looked at that a little bit. We've seen a, a bunch of problems, right? Um, and... Mallory does seem to suggest the quest for the Holy Grail, if it doesn't give a solution to those problems, at least really dramatizes them, right? Really brings them out, um, uh, makes it makes makes it clear 
that those problems are pretty serious problems, right? Um, so, anyway, let me, um, uh, yeah, Tarloniel says, it's like the mysterious workings of God, incomprehensible to mere mortals, such as we. Yeah, that's kind of where I've been sitting, Tarloniel, for a while. Uh, maybe someday I'll get a chance to sit down and really think through the, uh, the boats and the spindles and everything else and try to make some clearer sense of all this. Uh, but uh, that day hasn't quite come yet. But let's look through and see what we see. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe we'll be inspired as we go through. So the weirdness begins, as far as I'm concerned, with these three spindles. So they get into a boat, right? Uh, yet another boat. So, and they're in a boat, and there's a girl in the boat, right? So there's there's the three of them, all three of the Grail Knights, uh, and there's this girl whom they haven't really been introduced to yet, right? And of course, you will remember that she turns out to be Percival's sister. All right. Um, and on this boat, there are three spindles. I don't know why there are spindles on the boat. I, I'm not even sure what that word means in this context. Like, is is it just is it a part of the boat that's called a spindle? Are they just random like and sticking out from the side of the boat are these three little wooden rods which kind of look like spindles and they're there for no obvious reason. I don't really know. Uh so my ignorance about the three spindles starts from the very beginning. But in any case, there are spindles there and as you will remember the uh thing about the spindles is that um uh the thing about the spindles is that they're, they're different colors, right? One is white, one is green, and one is red. And it is pointed out that they are not painted, right? Uh, the natural wood is bright white, is, is, is pure white, pure green, and pure red all the way through. I don't know if they, you know, shave some off in order to confirm this, but they know this. They can see that this is uh, not just painted or colored wood, Um yeah. Um. <laughs> Sorry, Brandon, I see you trying to goad me into making comments about Joseph Campbell, but I am not going to. Could Joseph Campbell explain all of this? Yeah, sure. Joseph Campbell can explain anything. Um, there's nothing Joseph Campbell can't oversimplify. So there you go, Brandon. I, you've goaded me into saying something about Joseph Campbell. Darn me for falling into your cunning trap. Anyway, um, okay. So, let's read about the spindles. <laughs> These spindles, sighed the damsel, was one sinful Eve come to gather fruit for which Adam and she were put out of paradise. Okay. She took with her the bauch on which the apple hung on, then perceived that she, then perceived she that the branch was fresh and green, and she remembered of the loss which come of the tree. Then she thought to keep the branch as long as she meeked, for she had no coffer to keep it in. She put it in the earth. Okay, like you do. Okay, so Eve, let's just make sure we're all tracking here. So Eve took the branch from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the fruit on it, right? And she gives the fruit to Adam. She hangs on to the branch, right? Because she just doesn't want to throw the packaging away. I have a kid like this too. So, okay, so she keeps the branch, and takes, so then they get kicked out of paradise, and she's still toting the branch, right, on which the fruit was hanging. So this is a, a branch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that she bears with her um, 
she bears with her out of um, out of Eden, right? Okay, and she buries it in the earth because she doesn't have a coffer to put it in, right? Not having a coffer, she buries it. Okay, fine. So, by the will of our Lord, the branch grew to a great tree within a little while, and was as wheat as honey snow, branches, bowers, and leaves. That was a token that a maiden planted it. But after that, our Lord come to Adam and bade him know his wife fleshly, as nature required. So lie Adam with his wife under the psalm tree, and anon the tree which was wheat fell to green as honey grass, and all that come out of it. So, like, you know, the leaves and everything else were green. And and in the psalm time that they meddled together, Abel was begotten. Thus was the tree long of green colour, and so it befell many days after, under that psalm tree, Caim slew Abel, whereof befell great marvail, for as Abel had received death under the green tree, he lost the green colour and became red. And that was the tokening of blood, and anon all the planters died thereof. But the tree grew and waxed marvellously fire, and it was the most firest tree and the most delectable that any man meeked behold and see, and so did the planters that grew out of it to for that Ibel was slain under it. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, Stephen says, I guess I never read Genesis, the director's cut. Yeah, I know, I know. Um... Uh, Stephen, I hope you also enjoyed the supplement to the story of Solomon, right? Um, which we get later on. Okay, yeah. So De- uh, Devorah meddled together uh, is a is a very that's a that's a fun and actually fairly common Middle English uh, uh, euphemism there. Yeah. Um, okay. Nancy thinks that the virginity detecting tree is one of the weirdest things she's seen in this book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's tolerably weird. Yes. Um, Okay. So. um, (laughs) Karina, that's your new favorite euphemism. It is a pretty good one. Um, uh, so yes, Stephen uh, Abel was born before Cain in this version. Apparently, yes, yes. Roll with it, roll with it, Stephen. It's all good. So Abel's born, and then Cain is born, and then Cain kills Abel. So we have three uh, acts associated with these, with the three life stages of this tree. Right, the tree is white when it is planted. Because it is planted when by Eve when she's still a virgin. Okay. And apparently the white tree springs up. Uh, uh, time passes, right, between when she plants the branch and when she and Adam meddle together, right, uh, and, uh, and she conceives Abel. Um, enough... I guess, um, uh, for, um, for the tree to spring up, 
roll with it. Uh, Marilyn says, isn't that metaphor for sex the same as a word used for jousting? Yes. And actually, Marilyn, jousting was a favorite metaphor for sex. One of the more graphic metaphors for sex, um, sometimes used in courtly love literature. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, okay. Plowing being another, but never mind. Um, so, um, okay. So the white tree would seem to suggest a kind of innocence. This is ironic because, um, they've just been kicked out of paradise, right? I mean, this is the branch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? The, 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 the sin of Adam has just, like, this is an, ex- the branch that she plants is an accessory to the sin of Adam. So I guess that's really, that's really kind of where my difficulty with this whole thing starts, right? Um, is with the white tree. I feel like I can get behind the green and the red, right? Um, because it would seem to map to, to sort of be offering a kind of microcosm of the corruption of mankind, right? Um, the falling from Edenic simplicity of life. One of the things that you will notice, of course, um, so a, point of controversy uh, in medieval and uh, early modern theology was did Adam and Eve have sex in Eden? Right? Is sex part of the innocent existence? Um, This is of course significant those of you who know your Milton will remember that Milton came down very strongly on this subject. Right. Uh, In the pro sex in Eden camp. Right. uh, uh, Milton was uh, 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 his Adam and Eve are clearly there's some meddling that goes on while they are still in a state of innocence uh, inside the uh, um, inside the garden. Jennifer, yes, exactly. The injunction uh, by God to be fruitful and multiply would seem to support that reading. Right. There's there are certainly arguments to be made in favor of that, uh, of the pro-Sex in Eden uh, side of the argument, which was, uh, uh, which was, as I say, very famously championed by Milton in Paradise Lost. But um, most of the medieval teachers were against this idea. Um, uh, and, um, uh, th- oh, Nancy, you are absolutely right, by the way, that Milton does... Um, make a distinction, uh, sex, they have sex again afterwards, uh, but it is very different, actually. It's one of the things that Milton uses uh, to convey the, uh, the, the impact uh, of the fall. Um, yeah, it's like actually the first thing that Adam and Eve do after the fall. But anyway, uh, book nine, it's very interesting. So, um, however, that's not the point. The point is, in the Middle Ages, the more popular 
the more common, I should say. I don't know how popular it was. Uh, but uh, the more common interpretation was that uh, they only had sex afterwards. And the support for this, so Jennifer, the, 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 the biblical support for this, the pro-sex in Eden camp would use the be fruitful and multiply argument, right? The uh, anti-sex in Eden uh, thing begins with that, like, it's not referred to, right? Like, and, you know, Adam knew his wife uh, and she, you know, begets children after they leave the garden, right? So the text says that he knew his wife, which would imply that they didn't, he didn't know his wife before. And so therefore, um, no sex while in Eden. Um, so that's, um, that would be how that particular argument goes. And Mallory seems to be uh, using that, right? Why it is that Eve's virginity seems to, uh, uh, seems to trump, um, the sin of Adam, right? I, you know, um, I don't really know. Um, I really, uh, I'm not quite sure about that. Um, but again, if I sort of try to take my own advice and just roll with this, right? The overall shape seems tolerably clear, right? The white tree, and I know it's really hard to talk to a whole bunch of people, most of whom are Tolkien fans about the white tree. Um, but we're going to do that. The white tree, right, is associated with innocence, associated with explicitly with virginity, right? Um, and then we have that passes to the green tree. So the red tree is the final state, right? The red tree, which is a result of the blood, the murdered, the, the, the murder of the brother, right? The blood of Abel, uh, 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 in the ground, right? The, 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 the blood of Abel cries out from the ground against Cain, of course, uh, uh, metaphorically, presumably, uh, in God's words to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, um, it, 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 through the coloration of the tree, right? It is, is like the tree is broadcasting. If the ground is, is, is calling it out, the tree is showing it forth, right? Um, so the red tree is associated with murder, with blood. So we have thorough moral corruption, right? We have innocence in the white tree. We have corruption in the red tree. The green tree is in the middle, right? There's nothing wrong. The meddling togethers is fine, right? Um, all sex isn't bad, right? And they're, you know, Adam and Eve are lawfully married. You know, they're kind of married by God, so that counts. And they're, you know, being fruitful and multiplying, right? Both. So, um, it's fine, but it is it is also a moment. And again, this is notice the effect of focusing on the sex after Eden thing, right? Um, that their the loss of their sexual innocence is made to coincide with the loss of their moral innocence, right? And the green tree seems to signal that, right? To be uh, the symbol of this intermediate stage in the corruption of mankind. What we get, therefore, I think that's why it's important that we get three um, three symbols, right? Um, that is, what we get is a progression, right? We don't just get before and after. We don't just get white and red. We get the white, the green, and the red. Um, and therefore, a... Um, uh, this sense of the downward spiral of humanity, the moral, the downward moral spiral of humanity. 
and it is these three shades of wood. So apparently these spindles were cut from those three trees. Now, um, Tarlonio makes a really great point um, on the uh, Twitch chat there, saying that the murder tree is most fair and delectable. Um, yes, it grew and waxed marvelously fair, and it was the most fairest tree and the most delectable that any man might behold and see. Yes. Does that mean it's more fair and delectable than the white and the green? No, it's just more fair and delectable, I think it means, than like any other tree in the world. Like, it's still a miraculous tree, um, despite the fact that it is now stained red with the blood of the sin of mankind. Um, which is, yeah, exactly, it's from Eden. Yeah, yeah. Um, remember, um, remember that I've said before, I've noted how, before how much C.S. Lewis loves Mallory, right? Um, I, apple trees planted in the backyards of certain London row houses, right? might also have something to do with this legend. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, Stephen says, if we didn't have this interpretation, I'd almost think the red tree was most fair because of Christ's blood. Well, Stephen, we can't forget that, of course, whenever uh, we as medieval Christians are thinking about the sin of Adam and Eve, we do think about Christ and Christ's blood, right? You know, the Felix Peccata Adai, the, 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 the fortunate sin of Adam, um, because the sin of Adam leads directly to the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So blood is bad, right? But blood is also um, uh, 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 pre, uh, preeminently good. Um, and so, yeah, Stephen, I'm not, I, I'm not at all sure that that's uh, irrelevant there to the fairness and delectableness uh, of that tree. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. No, Tarlonio and Muddy Felix, uh, don't confuse it with the, with the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Totally different vision. Uh, totally different vision. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um uh, yeah, so, so, and Brian, so I don't think it's it's necessarily tying the fall to the murder of Abel, like saying that the fall didn't really happen until then. I think that, I mean, uh, well, if you're, uh, I mean, if you'll forgive the sort of semi-pun there, right, the, the murder of Abel is sort of the final fruit of the eating of the fruit, right, of, of, of the fall. Um, it is the... Uh, the sign of the degenerate, not the sign exactly, uh, I don't want to make it sound like a symbol, not exactly the symbol, the indicator, right? The, um, the first evidence of the degeneration of mankind, the moral degeneration of mankind, which God says is going to happen upon, uh, you know, once the, uh, the fall happens. Anyway, culmination? Yeah, not quite culmination, uh, Patricia, but yeah, sort of along those lines. Anyway, why are these spindles? on the boat, right? Um, what are they? So having thought a little bit about the symbolism there, why are they here? What is the point? Right. And again, this is the ship that is going to bear them. Well, anyway, towards not fully to, uh, the Holy grail. This is the, this is the beginning of the final stage of their, uh, journey to the Holy grail. Um, 
which is all about penitence, which is all about, uh, uh, you know, Stephen, getting back to your point, um, all about the blood of Christ. Right. Um, So redemption, confession, repentance, redemption, um, and moral purity. You know, there's a sense in which Galahad as this sort of highly messianic figure, right? Um, We are out in the grail quest to some extent to, if not reverse things, you know, we're not reversing the fall of man exactly, right? But uh, it's a kind of retrograde motion in a good sense, right? As mankind is going downhill, right? As again, these three spindles point to that downward progression of mankind, um, which has been trending downhill, right? Since the beginning, the grail quest is swimming upstream to be continually and wildly shifting the metaphor here. Um, uh, They are repenting, they are turning back, um, they are moving towards purity instead of away from it. Um, And so we get this reminder, right? Um, The reminder... And the reminder that it's it's not just them. This is not just Arthur's court, right? This is all of humanity. This what is going on here is a a sort of microcosm um, of what should happen, what could happen to humanity, with humanity, through humanity, right? Um, I'm uh, I'm not really sure. Brian is asking about the, you know do the ships have any sig- symbolic significance in themselves? Um, uh, yeah, well, sure. Um, yeah, of course, they're, uh, yes, they, they serve a practical function as a mode of transport between these important spots. Um, but obviously, yes, there's more than that. Brian, this is also a great example of the kind of thing that I'm not sure that I understand, right? Because they go on different stages through different ships. Do each one of the ships symbolize a different sort of stage of spiritual progress or something like that that I'm not understanding? That seems to me very possible. Um, uh, But I don't really... That's one of the things that I haven't really been able to map. Um, uh, I also have to say that I don't think most of the ships, some of the ships, we do get a lot of details about what's in it, like this one with the spindles and the bed. Um, but with some of them, we don't, uh, get much details about. So I don't feel like I've got much to go on, right. In figuring out like, what is the symbolic significance of that particular ship? Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tarlonio says it's a fractal of symbolism. No matter how closely you look, there's more symbolism to uncover. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. It's a generous way to look at it. Um, uh, yeah, so, Stephen, I think that's kind of the direction that I was going there. Stephen says, you know, in this interpretation, you know, like the three spindles show the fall from perfection into sin, um, but in the grail quest, we have the reversal of this going from Christ's blood, which is the red, uh, uh, leading to uh, sort of Christian spiritual growth, which is green, to ultimately to the reattainment of purity, uh, which is white. 
Yeah, sure. I can go with that. I kind of like that. I'm not 100% sure about the green, right? Exactly what the green means. I'm not seeing... I'm trying to think of terms used within the Grail quests themselves and the Grail adventures to try to define what what would that green be. Um, is the green sort of like the, you know, are we to associate the red of Christ's atoning blood, right? That 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 beginning state of corruption, which then begins, uh, and and that backwards journey beginning with the red baptism in the blood of Jesus Christ. Does it then move on to? Is the green like the Grail quest itself, right? After they've departed from the court, so they've left the world behind and gone off in the Grail, so they're in a green state, right? Right now, and then when they attain, when they achieve the Grail, that will be the shift back to white, maybe. Right, um, but I'm not sure I really understand what that green state is exactly. Um, post repentance, but pre perfection, I guess. Uh, not really sure, but anyway. Um, all right, so then <laughs> this is one of my favorite parts of this whole section. So um, the damsel who is Percival's sister, is exceptionally well-informed, right? Uh, This girl has clearly gotten an advanced degree, not in nigromancy, obviously. She didn't go to that convent school, but she went to some convent school or other uh, and, and has a graduate degree in Holy Grail symbolism. And not to mention uh, that she, she clearly majored, in Grail symbolism and minored uh, in the history of the family of Joseph of Arimathea because she can explain everything, right? She uh, there as the you know the, the the virginal sister of Percival who is there waiting for them in the boat is like the ultimate recluse, right? She's like the ultimate hermit. Um, uh, can explain absolutely everything. So she's just been explaining everything about the sword that he's found and he needs a girdle now with which he can, uh, 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 you know, bind the sword onto himself, right? He, he, he's got the sword, but he needs the girdle. Um, and, um, she has just explained how, you know, uh, uh, only like this, you know, gentlewoman can uh, make the girdle for the sword. Um, and, uh, so Galahad asks, now, sighed Sir Galahad, where shall we find the gentlewoman that shall mock new Gerdis to the sweared? Fire seers, sighed Percival's sister, dismay you not, for, by the leave of God, I shall let mock a girdle to the sweared, such on as showed long thereto. Then opened she a box, and took out girdles, which were seeming, seemingly rocked with golden threads, and upon that were set full precious stones, and a rich buckle of gold. Lo, lordes, she sighed, here is a girdle that ought to be set about the sword, and wit you well, the greatest part of this girdle was made of my hire, which some time I loved well, while that I was woman of the world. But as soon as I wist that this adventure was ordained me, I clipped off my hair and made this girdle. In the name of God, ye be well found, said Sir Bors with tremendous understatement. For Sir Tace, ye have put us out of great pine, wherein we should have entered, na had your tidings been. Then went the gentlewoman and set it on the on the the hurdle of the sword. Okay. 
So, uh, <laughs> she, yeah, Zach, I agree. She is as knowledgeable as Percival is ignorant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, she has not only does she happen to be to have a girdle on her, right, uh, which is already made up and set with jewels and a golden buckle and all that. Uh, she had the uh, presence of mind to weave a girdle out of her own hair, uh, right? Largely out of her own hair. There are other materials used as well in the girdle, um, and um, uh, and so she's all set with the girdle, right? Uh, this adventure has been laid upon her. She's been trained for this for this moment, right? Um, and now she uh, uh, is fulfilling her own destiny here as well. Notice that the hair, right, um, the making of the girdle with her own hair, is not because her hair is sort of magical or powerful in itself, right? Like the hair of certain other people, like with which one might possibly make like a cloak or something, but rather... Um, it is a symbol of her own sacrifice, right? Of her own dedication to sacred things, right? When this adventure was ordained for her, she cut off her hair in which she had been proud, right? Her hair. Remember that just as the knights have the, you know, the prowess in battle leaderboard, right? The ladies have the most beautiful woman in the world leaderboard. And Percival's sister is very beautiful. We don't know where her status is or would have been on the leaderboard because she has abandoned that, right? And her cutting off of her own hair, so she should be depicted, right, uh, in the uh, certain-to-be-a-smash-hit Hollywood adaptation of The Quest for the Holy Grail, uh, faithful to this story. Um, she would have to be depicted as having roughly cut very, very short hair, right? So she would be beautiful, but with uh, strangely, uh, uh, but strangely shorn, Right, she is no longer a woman of the world, exactly, James. Just as the knights are no longer earthly knights, Lancelot is still an earthly knight. Right, he was the greatest earthly knight. Um, uh, now uh, these three knights are no longer earthly knights; they're now heavenly knights, spiritual knights. And she is now a spiritual damsel. And the sign of that, the outward sign of that, was her cutting off of her hair, with which she made this girdle. So the girdle. So he is he is going to gird this sword of destiny, the latest sword of destiny, um, uh, uh, on his hip with the girdle of like the sacrifice and the resignation of worldly pretensions and pride. Right, that fits. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Stephen, it is uh, when you're thinking. One is thinking about cutting one's hair. One naturally does think of Samson. Um, but uh, but of course it's quite different there. In fact, arguably opposite, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Brandon, of course, is thinking about Galadriel. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, understandably, understandably. Um, okay, so. Again, once they meet with Percival's sister, they're not being tested anymore, right? 
now things are just being explained to them. Um, and she just goes to exposition and exposition and exposition, telling them all of the things and all of what is happening and all of the history and all of that stuff, right? Um, then, of course, they come to the castle, which has this evil custom where they compel uh, damsels to bleed a basin full of blood in order to save the life of the woman there who is sick. Now, you will recall that we've been here before. Um, that a damsel who was in the company of Lancelot, I think, gave a basin of her blood, survived, but gave a basin of her blood uh, in order to save the lady, but it didn't take, right? Um, and you may also remember um, that um, you may also remember that at that time, several hundred pages ago in the story, Mallory said that Percival's sister was going to be the one uh, who was... This is long before we'd ever heard of Sir Percival. Sir Percival's sister was going to be the one who was going to uh, satisfy that custom and die as a result, right? And so we have finally come to that thing. So um, there's a lot of combat here. They kill a whole bunch of people uh, in defense of her, um, which was striking. I was very surprised because we had previously made a big deal about the fact that the Grail Knights weren't killing folks, right? Whereas Gawain was killing people. So even where he seemed to be winning, right? Even when he killed those seven brothers from the Castle of Maidens, right? Um, who were very bad, right? Um, uh, and, um, you know, kind of seemed to deserve it. But the, we were told by trustworthy hermits that that was, a, that was an indicator uh, that they were actually on the wrong path. They, that is, Gawain and uh, uh, and Uwain and even Gareth, remember, was with them um, that because they because they, they 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 killed them. Whereas Percival, or sorry, not Percival, Galahad just drove them off. Um, here they fight and they kill um, bunches of people, um, and I don't know why the rules have changed. The only conclusion that I can kind of come to here is that um, things have shifted because they're, they're, they're in a separate part of the Grail quest now, right? In the earlier stages when they were all still being tested, that was a, not killing people was apparently a good and, and uh, significant thing. Um, now, yeah, Dolor Sirica, it said these, these, these guys needed some kill and it does seem so. Um, and they're guilty, right? They're, they are guilty of the death of dozens and dozens of ladies, right? As we see the, the, the tombs of all of the ladies who have been killed in order to save the life of this one lady. Um, and, uh, but now Percival's sister is here. So after they get into a good deal of combat, slaying the people who are attempting to take her and in order to bleed her, probably to death, um, she then volunteers, right, and insists on being taken in and bled in order to save the life of that lady. And with that she fell in a sown. Thanser Galahad and his twelve fellows stared up to her and lift her up and staunched her blood, but she had bled so much that she make not live. So when she was awakened, she sighed, Fire brother Sir Percival, I die for the hailing of this laddie. And when I am dead, I require you that ye bury me not in this country, but as soon as I am dead, put me in a boat at the next haven, and let me go as adventures will lead me. 
And as soon as ye three come to the city of Saras, there to enchieve the Holy Grail, ye shall find me under a tower arrived, and there bury me in the spiritual place. For I shall tell you for truth, there Sir Galahad shall be buried, and ye both in the same place. When Sir Percival understood these words, he grounded here all weepingly, and then sighed a voice unto them, Lord is tomorrow at the hour of prime, ye three shall depart ever each from other, till the aventure bring you unto the maimed king. She, of course, volunteers to die, right? Um, now, one might be tempted to say, well, but hang on, these are bad people, right? I mean, these knights are not good folks, and even the lady, right, who is uh, being healed, like she has been the cause of the bleeding to death of dozens and dozens of ladies, right? But what, what should we be thinking, right? She is, of course, giving her blood in order to save someone else. That's not hard to interpret in this context, right? And is, of course, for her, she is now enacting the next stage, right? If her first stage was to leave the world, right, uh, as symbolized by the cutting of her hair for the making of the girdle of Galahad's sword, um, so now the sacrifice of her life, shedding her blood in order to heal uh, someone else, is the next step in following in the footsteps, right? In, in walking the path of holiness and following in the footsteps of Christ. And just as Jesus shed his blood for people who didn't kind of fully deserve it, right? Uh, shedding his blood to save sinners, not to save uh, 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 holy people only. Exactly, Devorah, Jesus died for bad people. That's exactly, I think, the parallel that we're supposed to be uh, remembering here. Um, so she asks to be set out on a boat. This is uh, sort of mostly so she can guide them one last time, right? Uh, they know when they've arrived at the right place, when they've come, when they arrive and they find her body in the boat, right? Her boat has fetched up there right in their path as they arrive, uh, of course, uh, in the, uh, um, uh, in uh, in in the holy place, uh, as it is said. Yep, Marilyn, we get bunches of disembodied voices. Uh, remember, we were getting a whole bunch of sort of direct angelic intervention before um, in the form of like white knights knocking, you know, King Bagdemagus off his horse, uh, for instance, right? Um, so, you know, that, that, that kind of thing um, uh, is uh, something that we've seen right now. They're just mostly getting... Uh, uh, the uh, the intercom system, right? Um, yeah, and Marilyn, yes, I also presume that the body, her body in the boat is uncorrupted, right? That she will not have been rotting uh, during the time uh, when she has been uh, off in this, in the boat that they send her body off uh, in. Um, then they split up. The three knights split up and go their different ways. And Lancelot, who has also been in a boat, um, comes upon Sir Galahad, right? And we have the reunion of Lancelot and Galahad. And found Sir Lancelot dressed him unto the ship and sighed, Sir, ye be welcome. 
And he answered and saluted him again, and said, Sir, what is your name? For much my heart giveth unto you. Truly, said he, my name is Sir Launcelot du Lac. Sir, said he, then be ye welcome, for ye were the beginner of me in this world. Ah, Sir, are ye Sir Galahad? Yea, forsooth. And so he canaled down, and asked him his blessing. And after that took off his helm, and kissed him, and there was great joy betwixt them, for no tongue can tell what joy was betwixt them. And there every of them told other the adventures that had befall them, sith that they departed from the court. Now there are several things uh, that we can see here. One, this is not something that I would necessarily have assumed, right? Um, yeah, David Erbach, I agree. This is kind of sweet, right? The father-son time that they're given. Um, and I, I again, it, it's, it's not obvious to me that this is necessary, right? Um, in fact, it's one of those things where, like, at the beginning, if we'd had to guess, you know, I think maybe we would have guessed that this wouldn't happen. Gal had his left behind earthly things. Um, what does he have to gain from Lancelot, right? Lancelot has come closer, right, to making the cut of any of the other earthly knights, but he's not made the cut. He's not, he can't see the grail. Um, he can sort of see in a vision the room in which the grail is, but he can't enter, he's not allowed to enter into it, right? Um, we've already seen that in his adventures, and yet um, we do get this reunion between him and Lancelot. We do see that Galahad, who has surpassed Lancelot both in worldly prowess and, of course, in spiritual purity, um, is yet very loving to Lancelot, very grateful to Lancelot. Ye were the beginner of me in this world. Be ye welcome, right? There, and there is no tongue can tell the joy that is between them as they spend this... Uh, quality father-son time together for like a couple months in this boat in which they don't have to eat because they are sustained by the Holy Ghost. Um, so that's kind of fascinating. One of the things that this sort of suggests to me, right, is that on the one hand, it cements, and this might seem a strange thing to say, uh, in some ways, but it cements the connection between Lancelot and Galahad. That is, it cements Galahad's origin in Lancelot. Um, so much of the emphasis, emphasis has been placed on the surpassing of Lancelot by Galahad, right? As if Galahad were merely Lancelot's successor, right? As if Lancelot is merely John the Baptist to Galahad's Christ, right? And of course, in some ways, that's true. Um, but Lancelot, the, 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 the element of the relationship which this reunion seems to me to emphasize is not just Galahad is the one who is greater than Lancelot. Galahad is the lion and Lancelot is the leopard, right? We've gotten that again and again. Here we get a different thing emphasized, right? emphasized, right? And that is Galahad would not have been if not for Lancelot, right? Lancelot is the, not just falling short of the uh, perfection that Galahad perceives, but he is the stepping stone from which Galahad can rise to achieve that perfection. There is a kind of near, I don't know, 
this might be going too far to say it this way, but near sanctification of Lancelot through here. Again, he's not fully sanctified, um, but it sort of, again, while the rest of the text has been mostly emphasizing uh, the extent to which Lancelot falls short, this part of the text, this one moment in the text, uh, that is the moment of their reunion, seems to indicate not how much he's fallen short, but how close he is, how he is actually sort of the springing stone to perfection itself. Um, and that seems to me to be a very significant statement to make about Lancelot. Um, the other thing that I think that we can see here is that... Um, well, sort of the... Amb- my favorite sentence in this passage. And so he kneeled down and asked him his blessing. Who's kneeling to whom and asking his blessing here? Who is blessing whom in that statement? Right? Galahad? Possibly, because he was the last one who spoke. Asir are ye Galahad ye forsooth, and so he kneeled down. But I'm not sure. It could just, and we've seen plenty of ambiguity with pronouns, right? We know, um, yes, the last person to speak was Galahad, but we've seen plenty of examples when the pronouns refer back to, uh, Maori is not particularly rigid, right, about his use of antecedents in his pronoun usage. Um, and I think that, that the ambiguity of that statement is really interesting. Are we seeing a son asking for a blessing from his father? What could be more natural than that, right? Are we seeing Lancelot, the Grail Quest knight who has come very close, who knows he is right, he he has stood literally on the threshold, right, of the chamber of the Grail, Uh, for him to kneel to ask for the blessing of the perfect knight, who is going to achieve the grail, right? Who has not fallen short in the ways that he has fallen. Um, What could be more natural, right? Than for him to ask blessing of Galahad in that way. Um, And I love the fact that that is left ambiguous, right? It could be either. It could be both. They might both be asking each other their blessing, right? It doesn't suggest a mutual kneeling, but of course, the rest of that paragraph does emphasize the mutuality of their joy, the joy betwixt them, which is repeated twice there, right, within the one sentence. Um, that um, uh, That's a big deal. James was Lancelot wearing a helmet when they met? Yes. Yes, he was. Um, he was armed. Uh, you mean like why they didn't recognize each other? Um, I'm not even sure they would recognize each other without their helmets on. How many times have they met, right, in their adult life? Um, not to mention the fact that I'd be willing to bet that they might both look a little different now than they did before. But um, anyway, uh, I thought that this was a, a particularly evocative, both a, a quite a moving scene, I think, the, the, the father-son thing, um, but also... Um, thinking about what this means for the status of Lancelot, what this tells us about Lancelot's role uh, in the achievement of the Grail quest, right? Even though he himself is not destined to do it. Um, and of course, this stuff is 
going to be relevant later on with Lancelot when we see Lancelot's ultimate destiny. But we have to part. So after, on a Monday, it befell that they arrived in the edge of a forest to for a cross, and then south they knicked armed all in wheat, and was richly horsed, and led in his reeked hond a wheat horse. And so he come to the ship, and saluted the two knictes in the high lord's behalf, and said unto Sir Galahad, Sir, ye have been long enow with your father. Therefore come out of the ship, and talk this horse, and go where the adventurer shall lead you in the quest of the Sancreal. Then he went to his father, and kissed him sweetly, and sighed, Fire, sweet father, I wot not one I shall see you more till I see the body of Jesu Christ. Now, for God is love, sighed Sir Launcelot, pray to the father that he hold me still in his service. And so he took his horse, and there they heard a voice that sighed, Every of you think for to do well, for never more shall one see other, see other of you, before the dreadful day of doom. Now, my son Sir Galahad, sith we shall depart and neither of us see other more, I pray to that high father, conserve me, conserve me and you both. Sir, sighed Sir Galahad, no prayer availeth so much as yours. Um, yeah, Marilyn uh, points out that we've been told that Lancelot will end well. Is this scene perhaps relevant to that end? Yes, I do. I think that um, Lancelot is falling short, but he is not falling short in a Sir Gawainian way, right? Um, he's he is like a person not far enough down the path, but still looking in the right direction, right? Um, and again, I do think that's some of what gets emphasized here. Galahad is called away because it's Monday, apparently. Um, <laughs> I love the fact that the day of the week is named here. I have no idea why. But see, there's another thing that I'm like, that's probably significant, right? It's got to be significant. Why else would he mention it? But I'm not sure the significance of why this happens on a Monday. Um, uh, but anyway... There's this knight who has a horse waiting, a white horse waiting for for Galahad. Um, of course, remembering the white and the black sides of the tournament, right? We shouldn't be surprised about that, obviously. Um, but Lancelot is disinvited, right? Lancelot can't come. Only Galahad must go on. And then they seem to hold the the door open, right? Uh, Galahad says, I wote not when I shall see you. I don't know when I will see you more. Right. Uh, not sure when I'm going to see you again before I achieve the grail. And uh, then the voice from heaven tells them very clearly, right? Never more shall, shall one of you see the other until the dreadful day of doom. Um, just FYI, you are parting for life here. Um, yeah. Um, so. This leads them to say goodbye a little differently, right? Instead of this whole, like, I don't know when I'm going to see you again, right? Um, and Lancelot, uh, and Lancelot's like, hey, you know, uh, 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 pray for me. Um, notice Lancelot's prayer. 
Pray to the Father that he hold me still in his service. Hold me still in his service. Um, I love that phrasing too. Um, see the double meaning there? Um, that he hold me still. Like pray, pray to the Father that God continues to hold me in his service, right? That he will keep doing it. Um, hold me still. But of course, it also means that he might hold me still. That is, he might prevent me from moving, especially, of course, prevent me from backsliding. Does Lancelot himself feel his own weakness, right? Does he feel his own unstableness, right? Uh, his lack of stability. Uh, does he suspect that he's going to backslide despite his good intentions now. And so his prayer is that he be held still, right? He be kept from moving um, by God. Um, yeah. Um, I don't think we have to choose between those two uh, meanings, but I think it's certainly a very... Uh, I think the second meaning might possibly be totally unconscious, right? Just sort of dramatic irony for the benefit of the readers there. Um, but um, yeah, good. Uh, Iwendilian and Tarlonio are thinking about Moses not being able to enter the promised land. Certainly Lancelot on the threshold of the, of the, of the chapel, right? In which the Holy Grail was, is a little bit Moses-like, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, you know, the sin of Moses and the sin of Lancelot are quite different. Um, uh, well, I guess you could say there are some similarities, but um, that is both of them kind of putting themselves, it's the, their own pride, their own arrogance in their assertion of their role, their assertion of the position that they've been given, right? Lancelot, um, you know, sort of... Um, acting like, uh, you know, his confidence in his own knightly prowess, right? Not giving thanks to the Father for the gifts that he has been given. Um, it's kind of like Moses hitting the rock the second time. Um, there are some similarities. You could make that argument. I could buy that. Anyway, um, sorry, I'm not, I know I'm not going into detail, and I know if you don't know, you know, what was it? Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, or was it Numbers? I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, I know that that's not going to make much sense to you. Um, uh, so, but, and I don't want to get into the whole story of the sin of Moses because we got other things to talk about. Um, but anyway, I do think that that parallel between Moses and Lancelot is an interesting one. Galahad's final words to Lancelot, right? Seer no prior availeth so much as yours, right? Galahad knows he is the lion and Lancelot is the leopard. How many times has he read that in inscriptions, right? And in various places, uh, you know, um, he knows, but he doesn't triumph over his father, right? He doesn't look down on his father. Um, no prayer availeth so much as yours. Um, your prayer, it's Numbers 20. Okay, thanks, Stephen. I, I, I couldn't remember if it was Numbers of Deuteronomy. But of course it's Numbers. All the good stuff happens in Numbers. Numbers, most slighted book of the Old Testament, in my opinion. Um, anyway, it's only boring for the first seven chapters. Then it gets really good. Uh, yeah, David is pointing out that Galahad is uh, obeying the scripture to honor thy father. Yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, quite sincerely, right? Uh, not just... Um, 
uh, paying lip service to his dad, um, but really honoring his father here. Um, uh, and also, you know, I think, um, you know, we were talking about his good end, right? Um, and, um, Galahad, I think, has a sense of Lancelot's good end, right? Just as the hermits have been foreboding the backsliding of Lancelot, I think that in this, you know, in his parting, um, Galahad can foresee the ultimate sanctification of his father after the backsliding. Um, lots of spoilers, but of course that's also one of the themes of the Holy Grail section. So hit befell on a nicht at midnight. He arrived before a castle, on the back side which was rich and fire, and there was a postern open toward the sea. This is, of course, Lancelot who's come here, and was open without any keeping. Save two lions kept the entry, and the moon shone reeked clear. Anon Sir Lancelot heard a voice that said, "Lancelot, go out of this ship." and enter into the castle, where thou shalt see a great part of thy desire. Then he ran to his armies, and so armed him, and so went to the gut and saw the lions. Then set he hand to his sword, and drew it. So there came a dwarf suddenly, and smote him on the arm, so sore that the sword fell out of his hand. Then heard he a voice say, O man of evil faith and poor believe. Wherefore trustest thou more on thy harness than on thy macker? For he meeked more avile thee than thine armour, in what service that thou art set in? Than sighed Sir Launcelot, Fire Father Jesu Christ, I thank thee of thy great mercy, that thou repravest me of my misdeed. Now say I, thou holdest me for one of thy servants." Two things that I really want to emphasize about this passage. One is Lancelot's still thinking it wrong, right? We can see that Lancelot is still not yet sanctified, right? He still is doing the same thing, ultimately, that he did in the tournament with the White and Black Knights, right? Um, He's still thinking in the old terms. He sees two lions, and what does he do? He immediately goes into earthly night mode. Oh, well, two lions. Okay. It's just like back in the book of Sir Lancelot when I came to this castle and there were two giants and I was like, no problem. I can take on two giants because they're really big and there's more of them than me, but that's okay because I'm Lancelot, right? So I'm going to go and do this. So he's like, lions, no problem. I can do this, but I got to get my armor and sword, right? And then I'm going to go and I'm going to draw my sword and I'm going to go kill me some lions because I'm brave and I'm not afraid and I'm just going to keep going and it's going to be good um, because I'm the greatest knight on earth, right? Yeah, except that's not this. And notice how he he was just told, just told, the voice from heaven says, go out of your ship and enter the castle. That's all he had to do, right? Go out of the ship and enter the castle. Just walk through. The lions aren't going to hurt you, right? Um, yeah, now, Stephen, I think you make a really important point. Lancelot doesn't subconsciously jump to the right answer. No. Like, Percival will instinctively do the right thing. Lancelot is doing the wrong thing, right? But he does recognize the one ans- the right answer once he's been reproved. Yes, 
Exactly. And that's, again, where we can see Lancelot being sort of between the Grail Knights and uh, somebody like Gawain. Um, That reproof is the second thing that I want to really emphasize about this slide. Lancelot's reaction. When this random dwarf comes out of nowhere, why a dwarf? I think it's a dwarf in order to reprove him more, right? Remember, again, this is the guy who took on multiple giants, right, with just his sword, and he's fine, right? Um, But a single dwarf comes up and smacks his sword out of his hand, right? He's not being overcome by a superior foe. He is being rebuked, right? If you're going to take up arms and rely upon your own strength, I'm going to show you how weak your own strength is, right? And I'm going to bring a dwarf along to to disarm you single-handedly, right? Um, That's not how it's supposed to work. And he feels it. But notice the conclusion that he draws. It's not only that he takes the reproof well, which he does. It's not only that he gets the point and then proceeds correctly after that. Exactly, Dolores Stroke, more Daniel in the lion's den than David and Goliath, right? Um, but actually, shades of David and Goliath too, right? He wasn't supposed to go back for his armor, uh, just as David fought Goliath without the armor. Um, but anyway, um, he... The the thing that I want to... Um, yeah, uh, Tarlonio, I think that's fair. Tarlonio says that Lancelot is sincere in his repentance. He just never quite seems to learn anything. Yeah, yeah, that does seem to be part of his problem. But again, the thing I want to emphasize here is not just that he is rep- reproved, not just the form that the reproof takes. Look at the conclusion that Lancelot draws from the fact that he was reproved. Right? He is grateful for the reproof. I thank thee of thy great mercy that thou repravest me of my misdeed. Now see I that thou holdest me for one of thy servants. If you hadn't reproved me, I would know you didn't care, right? But because you've reproved me, I know you care. Um, keep that in mind. That's going to be important later on. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, Devora Exactly. Exactly. And David is thinking of a similar passage. He disciplines those he considers sons. Yes, Stephen is thinking of the same thing. Exactly. Those, that's exactly the, the, the Bible passages you should be remembering in this moment. Again, keep it in mind, because it's going to be important later on in Lancelot's story. Found Sir Lance. So he, um, he comes to the chamber door, right? Found Sir Launcelot canaled down to for the chamber door, for well wist he that there was the Sancreal within that chamber. Then sighed he, Fire, sweet father, Jesu Christ, if ever I did thing that pleased thee, Lord, for thy pity, na have me not in despite, for my sin is done before time, and that thou show me something of that I seek. And one that he saw the chamber door open, and there come out a great clearness that the house was as bright as all the torches of the world had been there. So come he to the chamber door, and Wald have entered, and anon a voice said unto him, Sir Launcelot, flee and enter not, for thou ought not to do it. For, for and if thou enter, thou shalt forthink it. Then he withdrew him aback, Reeked heavy. 
Then looked he up in the midst of into the midst of the chamber, and he saw a table of silver, and the holy vessel covered with red samite, and many angels about it, whereof one held a candle of wax brenning, and the other held a cross, and the ornamentes of an altar. And before the holy vessel he saw a good man clothed as a priest, and it seemed that he was at the sacring of the mass. That is, the moment of the Mass where the, the, the bread and the wine are blessed and made into the body and blood of Christ. And it seemed to Sir Launcelot that above the priest's hondas were three men, whereof the two put the youngest by likeness between the priest's hondas. And so he lift him up reeked high, and it seemed to show so to the people. Launcelot's prayer is answered. If ever I did thing that pleased thee, Lord, for thy pity, now have me not in despite, for my sin is done before time, and that thou show me something of that I seek. And he is shown something of what he seeks. He is allowed to come to the door and look into the door, and the clearness is coming out into the room where he is, right? So he's standing in the light, coming out from the room on the threshold, and he is seeing the grail inside. And he sees the grail more clearly than anyone else does. In fact, he is shown something of the mystery of the grail, right? Which is, of course, the mystery of the mass, the mystery of the transubstantiation, the three men, right, which are the three persons of the Trinity, who put the youngest of them, that is the son, uh, the second person of the Trinity, between the hands of the priest, as the priest. And of course, this is the moment, it's the, at the sacring of the Mass, right, when the priest would be holding up the wafer and saying, hoc est corpus, this is the body, right? And the literal body of the second person of the Trinity, Lancelot sees that body being mystically put into the bread that is between, or sort of replacing the bread, right, which is between the hands of the priest at the altar. And he lifts him upright high and seems to show so to the people. This, the mystery of the Mass is the mystery of the Grail. Remember, it was all about seeing the Grail. Right, how much of it you could see, and it was covered. Right, it's still covered with red samite, um, but Lancelot is being shown. Right, he is seeing from the doorway the mystery. He's not going to get to partake of this himself. Right, he's not going to achieve the Grail, but he is shown it. Right, he comes. He is this. He is the borderline character. Right, he is the boundary line character, the one who comes up to but cannot quite cross the threshold, at least not yet, right? Um, and if you detect still, as um, uh, Dolor Stroke is suggesting, a little, perhaps a little selfishness, a little self-aggrandizement still in Lancelot's um, calling out for a blessing, right, in his reaction, um, in the heaviness that he can't go in, um, I think you're right. I think that we can see that Lancelot is not yet perfected. Um, and that's again evident in his mindset. Um, his, what he does wrong in the tournament with the white and black knights, what he does wrong with the lions at the doorway, what he does wrong here in his desire to enter, his even 
feeling like he has some kind of right to enter um, is all, oops, oh dear, um, is all um, uh, showing us that, his, you know, the ways in which he is still not oriented correctly and some of the things which are likely to lead to his backsliding. Okay. Now we get some of the adventures of Galahad here as he's going through, not really being tested, but sort of manifesting himself, right? Um, here's one of those things. And so upon the morn, one he heard mass, Sir Galahad come unto King Mordrine, and anon the king saw him, which had lain blind of long time, and then he dressed him against him, and sighed, Sir Galahad, the servant of Jesu Christ, and very knicked, whose coming I have abiden long, now embrace me, and let me rest on thy breast, so that I may rest between thine armies, for thou art a clean virgin above all knictes, as the flower of the lily in whom virginity is signified. And thou art the rose, which is the flower of all good virtue, and in colour of fire. For the fire of the Holy Ghost is talking so, so in thee, that my flesh, which was all dead of oldness, is become again young. And when Sir Galahad heard these words, then he embraced him and all his body. Then sighed he, Fire Lord Jesu Christ, now I have my will. Now I require thee in this point that I am in that thou come and visit me. Sorry, now I require thee in this point that I am in, that thou come and visit me. Yeah, yeah, that's how it's supposed to go. And anon our Lord heard his prayer, and therewith the soul departed from the body. And then Sir Galahad put him in the earth as a king ought to be, and so departed, and came into a perilous forest, where he found the well which boiled with great wawas, as the tal telleth to fore. And as soon as Sir Galahad set his hand thereto, it ceased so that it brent no more, and anon the heat departed away. And cows, why that it brent, it was a sign of lechery, which was that time much use it. <laughs> I bet it was. And that heat make not abide his pure virginity. And so this was taken in the country for a miracle, and so ever after was it called Galahad as well. Galahad goes about doing... Miracles by the power of his virginity, right, of his purity. He is both simultaneously the lily and the rose, the lily which indicates virginity, purity, and the rose which indicates good virtue and in the color of fire, for the fire of the Holy Ghost is in him, right? Um, Galahad is... We've got the boiling well, right, which, which is the sign of lechery, which symbolizes uh, desire, right, fleshly desire. And Galahad, the heat might not abide it, right? He puts his hand in the boiling well uh, and the well is calmed, right? The boiling ceases, the heat is taken away. Anyone else is burned and killed by that, uh, by that well, but when he puts his hand in it, it quiets. But notice um, an important thing here, if we try to understand Galahad and his virginity and what all of this means, um, the sort of the moral weight that it's being given. Um, 
he is not ice, right? He is not sort of frozen virginity, which counteracts the heat of passion, right? He is fire. Um, he is associated with fire. He is not only the lily, he is the rose. Um, and the rose is very significant. It is not just modern florists who associate the red rose with love and passion. That is very traditional. And of course, it is the central conceit of the entire romance of the rose, which is the most popular, the canonical courtly love work of all time, right? It is one of the most popular, no, it is the most popular secular work of the entire Middle Ages. There are almost as many surviving manuscripts of the Romance of the Rose as there are of, like, Boethius or the Bible. I mean, it is very, very popular. Everybody knows the Romance of the Rose. Um, and the Rose is passion. The Rose is, uh, is desire. The Rose is eros. Um, but not in Galahad, right? He is the lily of virginity, but also the rose, the flaming virtue, this flaming, passionate power of virtue, the fire of the Holy Ghost that is in him. He overcomes the heat and the boiling heat of the well of lechery, again, not by coldness, right? But by a different and a purer fire. And that is what... Uh, cleans it. And yes, we should think about like the fire that purifies metal, Stephen, something like that. Of course, it's not the metaphor being used on either side of this. We don't get that metaphor. But yes, purifying fire is certainly the, the, the kinds of direction that we should be seeing there. And that's what happens. Like the heat, the heat of the well is the heat of the well perishes, not because I mean, it's, it, it was burning the heat of the well is not excess passion. It's insufficient. It is lesser than the heat of the fire that is in Galahad, the fire of the Holy Ghost, right? Sexual passion, uh, fleshly lust, flesh, fleshly lechery is not an excess of passion. It's a defect, right? A defect of the holy passion, of the fight. You've, it's not because you have too much fleshly fire. It's because you have an insufficient amount of the fire of the Holy Ghost. Um, seems to be the message that's conveyed here. Uh, I thought this was just a really interesting moment in thinking about Galahad's symbolism, Galahad's purity. What are we getting at with all of this virginity stuff? Okay. Carrying on. So they went thence. All south King Peles and, and Eleazar his son... Um, so, okay, so the three knights, right, the three Grail knights have gotten to King Pelly's house, uh, where the Fisher King is, and they're finally healing the Fisher King. And um, uh, after dinner, everybody leaves, right? Elaine's dead, right? This is King Pelly's, who's the father of Elaine, who is Galahad's mom. Elaine's dead, right? We learn that she has died. Um, and the Holy Grail is going to come after dinner, right? Uh, and of course, Again, remember, there was never any mystery about where the Holy Grail was. It's been hanging out in and out of King Pelles' house the whole time, right? So they get there, uh, and the Holy Grail's going to come. So uh, King Pelles and Eleazar, his son, stay with Bors and Galahad and, and, and Percival to await the coming of the Holy Grail. Everybody else in the household leaves. Um, which were holy men, right? King Pelles and Eleazar. And Amide, which was his niece. 
And so there abode these three knictes, and these three, Elis were no mo. And anon they saw knictes, all armen, that come in at the hall door, and did off their helmes and armes, and sighed unto Sir Galahad, Sir, we have hide reeked much for to be with you at this table, where the holy meat shall be departed. Then sighed he, Ye be welcome, but of whence be ye? So three of them sighed they were of Gaul, and the and other three sighed they were of Ireland, and other three sighed they were of Denmark. And so, as they sat thus, there came out a bed of tree of a chamber, which four gentlewomen brought, and in the bed lie a good man sick, and he had a crown of gold upon his head, and there in the middest of the palace they set him down and went again. Then he lift up his head and sighed, Sir Galahad, good knight, ye be right welcome, for much have I desired your coming, for in such pine and in such anguish as I have, no man else meeked have suffered long. But now I trust to God the term is come that my pine shall be allied, and so I shall soon pass out of this world, so as it was promised me long ago. Okay. Um, we are coming now toward... This looks like the final consummation of the Grail quest, right? And when they get there, and they're there with King Pelles and Eleazar and uh, Virgin Niece, right? Which seems, you know, kind of like Percival's sister. So here they are, and they're waiting for the Holy Grail to come, and then these other nine knights randomly come in, right? Who turn out to be three Grail knights from Gaul, three from Ireland, and three from Denmark. So there are twelve Grail knights total. So apparently what's been happening here in Arthur's court is only part of what's been going on around the world, right? There has been a Grail quest going on in Denmark and a Grail quest going on in Ireland and a Grail quest going on in even in France, right? Um, and these nine knights have come to join them. So the twelve knights and King Peles and Eleazar and the niece are all here together. Um, yeah, Jennifer, so many untold stories there. We don't know if, even know the names of these knights, right? Um, but yes, Jennifer, this has always felt like a very powerful sort of mythic moment for me. Um, yeah, David wants to know where, where all those epic romances are. Not written. Not written. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really, really interesting. And then, of course, we get another knight for Galahad to heal, another king for Galahad to heal, and who can then die after Galahad heals him. All of this consummation, which is generally leading to death. Um, though that's generally a good thing. Um, notice how um, death tends to be spoken of throughout this section, not as a punishment, not even as a trial to be endured, but as a blessing to be sought, right? Not by everybody under any circumstances, but by grail knights and uh, uh, people who are healed by the Holy Grail and all that kind of thing, right? Like the guy who is uh, rejuvenated uh, by Galahad, right, in the fire and lily passage, but then, of course, he immediately drops dead afterwards. Um, uh, and that's a blessing. Okay. So, 
This is still with the twelve knights, right? Found the bishop mad semblantus, though he would have gone to the sacring of a mass, and then he took an oble, which is a wafer, an oble which was mad in likeness of bread, and at the lifting up there came a vigour, that is a figure, right, in likeness of a child, and the visage was red and as bright as any fire, and smote himself into the bread, and all they saw it that the bread was formed of a of um, I wonder if, I, if there's a typo there. Someone look up that word for me. What's the word? Fleshly man? I'm not sure there. Formed of a what kind of a man? Somebody look that up for me. Um, and then he put it into the vessel, into the holy vessel again. And then he did that longed to a priest to do mass. And then he went to Sir Galahad and kissed him and bade him go and kiss his fellowess. And so he did anon. Now, said he, the servant is of Jesu Christ, ye shall be fed afore this table with sweet meates that never canictes yet tasted. And when he had sighed, he vanished away. And they set him at the table in great dread, and marred their prayers. Then looked they, and saw a man come out of the holy vessel, that had all the seniors of the passion of Jesu Christ, bleeding all openly, and sighed, my knictes and my servantes and my true children, which been come out of deadly life into the spiritual life, I will no longer cover me from you, but ye shall see now a part of my secretus and of my hid things. Now holdeth and receiveth the high order and meat which ye have so much desired. Um, yeah, okay, so... This is, you'll notice, very much like the Mass with Lancelot sees from the other side of the threshold of the chapel, right? Um, but they, of course, are, unlike Lancelot, they are participating in this Mass. Um, you get the figure in the likeness of a child who smites himself into the bread. I really like that. Um, notice how the child is red and as bright as any fire. Um and again, that seems to be you know, thinking about the fire of the Holy Ghost and the and uh, you know the fire of the rose, right? Um, that we saw in Galahad, right? We see it even obviously more perfectly here in Christ. Christ the child, the sacrifice. Christ the child goes into the bread. The mass happens, right? And then he rises. The vision of him rises out of the cup, right? With the signs. Um, uh, and he has all the signs, that is to say, the stigmata, right? He has the holes, the bleeding holes in his hands, the bleeding holes in his feet, the bleeding hole in his side, right? As he rises up out of the cup. So he is like the resurrected Christ, into whose hands you can thrust your fingers and into whose side you can thrust your hand, right? Um, that's what that means, the signs. Um, uh Yeah. Yeah. Um I think it's fleshly because it's the it's it's about the bread was formed of a fleshly man. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Uh because going the emphasis is on um um the the bread being made flesh, right? It's it's the emphasis is on the transubstantiation there. Yeah. Yeah. Um okay. 
If the book ended here, that is, if the book of the Sankriel ended here, I'd be like standing up and cheering. Right? I mean, we've achieved the Grail. Just as the quest for the Holy Grail begins with the miraculous feast at the court of King Arthur, when the Grail comes in and all of the knights are fed on uh, the meat that they like best in the world, right? So now the quest of the Grail ends with the Holy Grail coming in and not a worldly feast, but the spiritual feast, right? The Mass itself and the transubstantiated Christ. is, the, And they are told, right, um, that... Uh, they will receive meat which they have so much desired, right? Um, they will now be eating the meat which is the flesh of Christ, not the earthly meats, which, you know, like they happen to like the, you know, the whatever was their favorite meats in the world, right, that they were eating. Um, so this always seemed to me this would be a great ending for the Holy Grail story, but this isn't the end of the Holy Grail story because they have to go out on another boat. So the other nine knights go home after this. They're done. But our three Grail knights don't go home after this. Um, and um, they um, they set off uh, in another boat and they land before a city and there they find a boat with Percival's sister's corpse in it. Right? Um, and uh, as they're coming in a cripple is healed. Right, by Galahad. Anon rose there a great noise in the city that a cripple was made whole by Knictus Mervilos that entered into the city. Then anon after the three Knictus went to the water and brought up into the palace Sir Percival's sister and buried her as richly as them oct a king's doctor. And Juan the king of that country knew that and saw that fellowship whose name was Esterhaus. He asked them of whence they were, and what thing it was that they had brought upon the table of silver. And they told him the truth of the Sancreal, and the power which God hath set there. Than this king was a great tyrant, and uh, and was come of the line of Pinemis, and took them and put him in prison in a deep hole. But as soon as they were there, our Lord sent them the Sancreal, through whose grass they were always fulfilled while they were in prison. So they bring the Holy Grail, and they come to the holy city, and they find the corpse of Percival's sister, so they know they're in the right place, and they bring her in and bury her like she told them to do. And uh, they come in with the Holy Grail, and people are being healed, and this is they've come to the, to the holy city, and this is great. And then, but it turns out that the king of this city is a tyrant who is descended from pagans, and so he throws them into prison. Um, which didn't seem like it was necessarily where this story was headed, right? So why are we in prison now? Weren't we kind of there? Weren't we almost done? And now we're in jail? I mean, okay, the Holy Grail is still sustaining them, but where are we going here? Um, eventually, of course... They get out of prison because the tyrant dies. And when they're let out of prison, Galahad is made king. Right? So Galahad becomes king in Saris here. Uh, and uh, that goes on for some time. So why were we in prison? Why couldn't he just become... If becoming king was the thing, why couldn't he just become king? Um, well, my reason for that, by the way, 
one of the things that is primarily emphasized about both Galahad and Percival here is their humility, right? This is almost like a final test, or not necessarily a test, because they passed lots of tests already, but rather it's sort of part of the process, right? Part of the process is this sort of worldly humiliation that they go through, right? Um, were they concerned about their worship still, right? Um, were they tempted to think highly of themselves? They get thrown into prison, right? And are left in prison for quite some time, right? Left in prison by God and by their sustained, but left in prison. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Patience and obedience, Dolores Stroke, I agree. That is that is the emphasis on what the, and they, they are given the opportunity to show both their patience and their obedience and their humility, right? But finally, uh, Galahad is going to get his pro, his promised reward, which is death, right? He was promised that he would be able to die when he chose. Come forth, the servant of Jesus Christ, and thou, sh- and thou shalt see that thou hast much desired to see. And then he began to tremble, wreaked hard, when the deadly flesh began to behold the spiritual fingers. Then he held up his hondas toward heaven and sighed, Lord, I thank thee, for now I see that that that, that hath been my desire many a die. Now, my blessed Lord, I will not live in this wretched world no longer, but if it might please thee, Lord. And therewith the good man took our Lord's body betwixt his hondas and proffered it to Sir Galahad, and he received it reek gladly and meekly. Now wottest thou what I am, said the good man? Nay, sir, said Sir Galahad. I am Joseph, the son of Joseph of Arimathea, which our Lord hath sent to thee to bear thee fellowship. And wottest thou wherefore he hath sent me more than any other? For thou hast resembled me in Tothingas, that thou hast seen, that is, the marviles of the Sancreal, and for thou hast been a clean maid, as I have be and am. And when he had said these words, Sir Galahad went to Sir Percival, and kissed him, and commended him to God. And so he went to Sir Bors, and kissed him, and commended him to God, and sighed, My fair lord, salute me unto my lord Sir Launcelot, my father, as soon as ye see him, bid him remember this world unstable. And therewith he kneeled down to fore the table and mad his priors, and so suddenly departed his soul to Jesus Christ, and a great multitude of angels barred up to heaven, even in the seat of his twelve fellows. Also these twelve connectors shall come from heaven unhand, but they sigh not the body, and so it come right to the vessel, and took it, and the spear, and so barred up into heaven, and Sithen was there never man so hardy to say that he had seen the Sancreal. All right, several things here. Um, yeah, good Stephen and Zachary are both thinking of the apostles being thrown into prison for Christ's sake. Yes, yes, and being uh, thankful for it. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, now, notice. Again, that, that that verb to see, right? To see the holy things has been, you know, Lancelot saw from a, saw in a dream first, and then through the you know through the doorway and across the threshold the second time. Um, 
Galahad and Bors and Percival and the other Grail Knights all saw, um, uh, you know, the revelation of the Grail, all saw the, 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 the great mass, right, the great feast there in King Pelles' house, and that seemed like a pretty personal interaction, right? Now Galahad is being brought into the presence in a, in a more clear way yet. Notice how he says that his deadly flesh began to behold the spirit. It, it, it began to tremble wreaked hard when the deadly flesh began to behold the spiritual things. Um, the flesh is mortal, right? The flesh is going to rot and die. Um, but, um, uh, uh, and when he comes into the presence of spiritual things, so at, here at this moment is of death, right? He is being given a, the clearest vision now of all. Uh, this is the consummation, right? When he is going to be finally himself joined to the spiritual things. And his whole flesh starts to tremble in anticipation of the separation that is to come. Death, not a bad thing. When you leave the deadly flesh behind and are joined to the high spiritual things, that is Galahad's reward. That is the final culmination of the Grail quest. He achieves the Grail. In this moment of consummation, Galahad is taken up into heaven and the Grail is taken up into heaven. And remember, the Grail has been associated very persistently with the Mass. And remember the significance of the Mass, of transubstantiation, right? It is physical bread, but it is also spiritually the flesh of Jesus Christ, right? The, the, the Mass is the place where heaven touches earth, the place where the spiritual and the physical meet and are joined, right? Galahad now is sort of crossing that, almost like that's a boundary, right? And going to the other side, leaving the flesh behind. Um, if the if the mass is the place where the two worlds, the worlds of the world of the flesh, the earthly world and the spiritual world, come into contact with each other, right? Galahad is using that as a kind of portal, right? to enter into the spiritual realm and his spirit is being taken up. He's got to leave his flesh behind, though, right? Because uh, he's done with that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and David, you're absolutely right. This is the truest joy and fulfillment for Galahad, right? Um, again, remember, as I've been saying about virginity, virginity is not a negative thing, right? Virginity is not about what you haven't experienced. Virginity is a positive thing. Um, and the positive joy that he takes in the things of the spirit, this is the ultimate fulfillment of the flesh. Um, not uh, the pleasures of the flesh, right? Just as the heat of the boiling well is uh, uh, cannot even uh, 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 continue to exist, right? When the fire of uh, the virtue of the Holy Ghost comes into contact with it. Um, and yet, and so... The Holy Grail is achieved when the Holy Grail is taken away. And there was never no man so hardy as to say um, that he had seen the Sancreal since this point, right? Um, in the end, I'm not sure what achieved means when they set out to achieve the Grail, right? Um, that phrasing at the beginning made it almost sound like it was a thing that the knights are supposed to do, right? Like they were going to, through an act of theirs, right? Through an act of yours, you would, what, achieve it? Earn it? 
win it or something, right? Like, like that they would get it for themselves or something, right? If you achieve it. Um, but that's not the case, right? Galahad himself becomes uh, something like um, a parallel to a symbol of the grail itself, right? He is taken up as the grail is taken up because uh, what he has achieved, this, um, you know, the, the grail again has been the this sort of symbol of this this sort of spiritual conduit, the spiritual meeting place between the earthly and the heavenly. And when he undergoes that transition, you know, his translation here from flesh to spirit, um, he, uh, um, he has achieved the grail and the grail is removed. Um, notice his blessing to his father, Lancelot. And again, I love the phrasing here. Salute me unto my lord, Sir Launcelot, my father, and as soon as ye see him, bid him remember of this world unstable. Um, remember the unstable world. Stable, of course, was the word that was used of Lancelot, or rather unstable, right? His unstableness is what was foreboded would lead to his trouble down the road. He genuinely repented, but it wasn't going to stick, right? Or it isn't going to stick. Um, Galahad's final words to his father, some of his final words at all, right, um, are that his father should remember this world unstable. Lancelot, of course, is still clinging to the world. But the world isn't worth clinging to. If you cling to the world, it will disappoint you. He sees, he knows, his father is still building his house on the sand, and it's not going to hold up, therefore, when the wind and the rain come, right? Um, the world is unstable. You have to let it go. You can't put your trust in the world. And He's right. We've seen Lancelot again and again thinking in worldly terms, relying on worldly things like his own strength and prowess and armor, right? Um, yes, and Dolly, uh, I agree. He's cut off his hair and let go like Percival's sister did. Yes, yes, Percival's sister's cutting of her hair uh, and then uh, relinquishing of her life for the saving of others is like... Right? She was partaking in the sacrifice of Christ as Galahad is partaking of it in a different way. Um, yeah, Lancelot needs to get behind this right? if things are going to go well for him. Um, the world to which he is still clinging and Guinevere is um, not just a big part of that, uh, but in a sense she is like the embodiment of that, right? Um, or rather, his desire for her and for her approval is is like the embodiment of his clinging to this unstable world. Um, he needs to be reminded. He needs to reorient himself if he's going to come out uh, and uh, finally have his repentance perfected down the road. All right. And... That's it. Oh, we finished. Boom. How about that? End of slides. Thank you very much. We finished the Holy Grail and more or less on time. How about that? Um, okay. So 
next week. We will be back and we will be beginning the book of Lancelot and Guinevere. What does happen when Lancelot goes back to the court? Because he is going to go back to the court and we will see this stuff happen. Watch as Maori lays out. We are going to finally get the payoff of all of the things, right? All of the things that have been hinted at and, and uh, foreshadowed through the stories of Tristan and Isolde, through the quest of the Sancreal and the, the hints that we've been given there, all of the direct warnings, all of the potential problems that we've seen, the stuff with Gawain, the stuff with the party of Lancelot's knights versus the other knights of, you know, all the foreshadowing of... Uh, you know that uh, uh, that you know friends of Lancelot fighting against Arthur's court and everything else. All of these things are going to come due now. Are going to come relevant now in these last two sections. Uh, so we're going to read the first half of the uh, the book of Sir Lancelot and Queen Guinevere next time. Um, and uh, uh, this is going to be great. So we have four more classes left. We're going to do two classes each on each of these last two books, which are quite short. Um, yeah, Boomful is thinking they're all going to live happily ever after. You know, Boomful, it, it, who knows? Maybe it'll happen, right? I do think there is this one guy who I'm pretty sure is going to die before the end, but, uh, but we'll see. Don't want to spoil it for you. Okay. Thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.